Welcome to The Hidden Island, a podcast where we talk about local island history. My name's Fiona Steele, and I'll be your host for this journey. We all know islanders love a good story, and we're nosy. Put those two together, and you'll understand why the rumor mill never stops turning here. But what about stories that stick around for hundreds of years? The ones that you tell your friends, and then have nightmares about yourself? That's right, we're talking ghost stories. Sometimes you learn something that makes you vow to mind your own business. Sometimes you hear something, a creak in a house, or an odd noise, and you pretend it didn't happen. Or sometimes, you experience something and have to convince yourself it wasn't real. But before we get into ghost stories, I think there's something to say about the strong history this island has with storytelling. So, I turn to Julie Pellissier-Lush. Hello, I'm Julie Pellissier-Lush. I wear a few hats during the day. I am a community consultant advisor for the Mi'kmaq Confederacy of PEI. I am also one of the original and organizers of Mi'kmaq Legends, which has split into Mi'kmaq Heritage Actors and Next Gen Legends. I'm also the Poet Laureate of Prince Edward Island, which means I go around and I promote poetry and storytelling and all those different things all across the island for the government of PEI. And I think there's a few other things, songwriter, book writer. I wrote my first book in 2009, so there's quite a few different things that I've got my hat on for. Just listening to all that she's done, you can understand why I was so eager to interview her about storytelling on this island. Stories hold the truth of who you are, where you're from, where you want to be. It holds your hopes and dreams, even if you're not even aware of them at the time. The Indigenous people here in PEI and probably all across Canada, but I know specifically in my research and my studies here in Mi'kma'ki, We weren't a written people. We didn't write down our stories. I think the most that we wrote down was the the petroglyphs in Kachimakuji. Those are different than the hieroglyphs in Egypt. A petroglyph is a symbol on a rock that represents a whole story. And that's about the most of the writing that we have ever done. And it's more of a picture that captures a story. So our way of life, our way of holding on to our past was to sit and tell stories. Stories that would explain our where we came from, how things evolved, and there is like about seven or eight different types of stories that we would share. One of them is what you shouldn't do, like the prankster stories, if you did this, this will happen to you, or we have the where we come from, or what's going on with the earth, or how we have to look after each other. And all of those stories have like a kernel of truth that even today I have one elder over in Millbrook and he studies as a, a master's how Mi'kmaq legends have kernels of truth in them. And I went and seen one of his presentations and what he does is he finds a story from long ago He studies it, he does testing, and then he finds the scientific proof to back up 
what's in that story. For example, one of our stories is the year that there was no summer. And it's a story about Gloosegap fighting winter. And it's a beautiful story that gives you all these rich colors and thoughts and sets the scene. But when he studied that legend, he went to uh, Debert and did a core sample. And in that core sample, they found that there was a year where there was no summer here in Mi'kma'ki. So that's the kernel of truth. But scientifically, we've proved that that story, even though it is a beautiful story and everybody goes, oh, that's so sweet. But, you know, we have a lot of different legends or stories that are made up to entertain us. But I think a lot of our stories have those kernels of truth that cross over and be able to transfer from one generation to another generation to another generation. And even though we're not set up the way we were traditionally, where we had small family groups that spent the winters in a lodge and told stories, we still are finding ways to save our stories and continue it on. I asked Julie if she grew up knowing any ghost stories on Lennox Island, and she had a few fantastic ones to share. We'll get into those in a little bit. But first, I was curious regarding what she said about stories holding truth. It's clear that statement alone shows the importance of storytelling among Indigenous communities as a record keeper for their culture. But then she started talking about ghost stories, and how they can be a form of oral history too. When she said that, it made me see the ghost stories islanders share through a different lens. Instead of just a way to account for the unexplainable, or scare kids around a campfire, maybe there's something more. I think in some odd way, we keep our ghost stories because it keeps our histories alive. And also, I mean, our history was rough. Our, our past here was difficult. I know of so many stories of different families that have been through so much, and it almost becomes our oral history here as islanders to be able to preserve those stories that are so important to the people. I mean, I think there was stories, if I'm driving up to Montague, and there's a church there, and there's like a great big uh, gravestone and two smaller ones next to it, and anybody who you're driving with will tell you, oh, that happened because there was this wedding party. The vehicle that they were in fell off a bridge, and everybody died the day of the wedding, and and it was so tragic, and so there's the husband, the bride, and the the little flower girl was in the vehicle, and so they're all buried together, and that becomes almost like the start of a ghost story, because what a tragedy to have the best time of your life end in such a sad way. Or when you go up west, and you're talking about the First Nations ghost stories, where there was an Acadian family that was going to get expelled way, way, way back in the day. And there was a Mi'kmaq family on one of the smaller islands off PEI that took them in. And of course, uh, the British heard about it and they went and killed everybody that was there. Men, women, children, and the Acadians, all of them were killed. And about, I don't know, maybe 75 years later, 100 years later, they put up a memorial plaque uh, just saying that this is what happened here. And to this day, if you go over there, you feel that energy, you feel that loss, you feel the sadness of that whole family that was cut down so quickly and so abruptly. And 
It preserves our history in an oral way, but it also keeps us connected to our past by engaging our mind in the possibilities that there's more than just the life that we are given and what's right in front of us. There's more to this world than just getting up and having breakfast and going to work every day. I think it gives us an opportunity to let our minds grow and wander with the possibilities that there is more than just what we see in front of us. Possibility is right. I'm sure you can think of at least one incident that's either happened to you or you've been told that makes you wonder about what's out there. Officially, I'm supposed to say that the PEI Museum and Heritage Foundation seeks neither to prove or invalidate the existence of ghosts. We're just exploring the history and the way ghost stories are a huge part of our storytelling traditions. But I'm pretty sure you can tell where I stand personally. Why else would I spend weeks researching, interviewing, and putting together an episode about ghost stories if I didn't even have a shred of belief in them? I've been spooked before, and I've had experiences I couldn't explain. I've worked in a lot of museums over the years, which are basically hotspots for ghost stories, so I won't go around saying there's no such thing. Speaking of museums, we've got seven sites and a ton of ghost stories surrounding them. I know what you're thinking. I'm just selling you a haunted experience. But it's the visitors, just as much as the staff, that have things to say. Let's start off with Julie, who explored outside Beaconsfield Historic House with the group Mi'kmaq Paranormal one night. Outside of it, especially at night, you feel like you are being watched. You feel like there's eyes on you, and but yet you look around and you can't really, there's nobody coming from Victoria Park. There's nobody, you know, walking past, and it's just quiet. And sometimes there's almost like a dead quiet where you can't even hear the wind or the water, and you're really close. The lawn behind Beaconsfield House stretches to the shoreline, so you're no more than 50 feet away from the water. Mi'kmaq Paranormal went to explore a few times, and one night, they captured something odd on film. Although Julie wasn't there that night, she told me what happened. And one of my friends, uh, she had taken a picture of the front door of Beaconsfield. In that photo, she captured this image of a woman, and it looked like she had small children near her. Other pictures, it wasn't there, so we're not sure how it just ended up getting captured on film, per se, but when uh, they posted it, people at Beaconsfield seen it, and they actually could see the similarities between one of the women who'd owned the house originally, with her husband, of course, and her family, and her children, and it sounded like it was a pretty tragic story, where I think a few of her children had died very young. We believe they saw Edith Haviland. Edith married James Peake in 1866. The couple built and lived in Beaconsfield for five years. Edith and James had six children, two of which had died before they moved to Beaconsfield. In 1880, they lost two more to diphtheria. By 1883, the family was bankrupt and lost possession of their home. James Peake left the province five years later, humiliated and in search of work. He died in British Columbia in 1895. Edith Haviland relied on the charity of her family 
and is said to have had no choice but to seek employment or become destitute. She died in 1931. Visitors at Beaconsfield have reported seeing a woman looking out on the second floor drawing room window, accompanied by two children. We wonder if it could have been Edith and two of her children, perhaps those that died while she was living at Beaconsfield, that members of Mi'kmaq Paranormal saw. After this happened, workers at Beaconsfield invited the members of Mi'kmaq Paranormal to get an inside tour of the house after their freaky experience. I think for, for me myself, when I actually went into Beaconsfield, you could feel that there was a few different presences there, a few different spirits uh, that must have had unfinished business, and you could almost just feel their energy as you walked. And when we came there, now this probably isn't paranormal, but it really got me. We were on the upstairs level, and the nursery is up there. And of course, all of us sort of had the hairs on the back of our neck standing up, just being this close, because only investigating it from the outside, suddenly we were on the inside, and we're looking around. And I get close to the nursery, and one of my friends looks down, and and there's those uh, alphabet blocks on the floor, and it had spelled out red on top and then rum on the bottom. (laughs) It was a staff member who actually had done that, but for us, we were like, oh my goodness, because everybody, I think, has watched The Shining with red rum, red rum, red rum, and it's like, oh my goodness. But Beaconsfield isn't the only site where people have reported haunted experiences. I talked to Brandy Coughlin, the current site manager of Green Park Shipbuilding Museum in Yo House, because I heard she had a story from when she used to be a tour guide there. I'm not exactly sure how many years ago that this little event took place, but there were three of us and we were on the front veranda at the main door, scraping the veranda, prepping it to get painted. We were chatting and talking about different things and there was one tour guide working in the house. She was giving a tour and all of a sudden we heard this death-curdling scream like someone was being murdered. That's what it felt like. And the three of us stopped simultaneously and we stared at each other. Like, what the heck was that? We were all dumbfounded. And it sounded like it had come from the back kitchen upstairs, the staff kitchen. So the three of us ran around the house and went up the stairs and nothing was there. It's kind of one of those things that you just kind of put at the back of your head that it happened and, oh, it was probably just our imagination. But for the three of us to hear it, we never really did do, you know, any more research on it we just kind of brushed it off but it's something that I'll never forget working here. That's not the only paranormal activity happening in the Yo House. I spoke with one of my co-workers about a particular artifact that's known internationally for being haunted. My name is Meg Preston. I'm the digitization assistant for the Museum and Heritage Foundation. Last spring Yorkshire Museum in the United Kingdom hosted these weekly curator battles. They were online Twitter competitions for museums all over the world to share their artifacts and generate interest because people couldn't actually visit museums in person. I'm sure you'll remember why, the worldwide lockdowns happening last spring with COVID-19. Every week the artifact subject changed, and one week's battle in April 
was called creepiest object. We felt what better than to use an object that moves around by itself. I know. I was shocked to learn we had haunted objects in our collection too. You know what's even better? This object has a name. Wheelie. So Wheelie is a small toy. He has small metal wheels that he stands on. And he's kind of beige in color, a little furry, missing fur in areas. His nose has obviously been chewed. He has a tail, kind of has ears. Is it a dog? Is it some sort of hybrid owl? Uh, large cat or something? You, you can't really tell what he is. I want you to picture something between a dog and a lamb, standing with four wheels where his paws should be. Now take away one wheel so he's crooked. Now take away some of his fur because it's been rubbed off over the years. Now imagine someone ripped off half his nose and left the pieces of fabric there. That's the worst part. Looking into the eyes of a creature with a shredded nose. Staff members inside the Yo House have walked into one of the children's rooms where he's kept and notice he's in a different location than he was the last time they were there. It's happened many times. The spookiest part is that the staff members say he was found inside the walls of Yo House. Our records say he was found on the ground somewhere, which could mean anything from inside a wall to being buried in a yard. Can you imagine being out on a walk and finding this? Or renovating your house and seeing this in the walls? Either way, it's creepy. Anyways, they posted a photo of him in the Curator Battle Twitter thread, and he went viral. The fact that he moves on his own really took off and people really resonated with that. I mean, it's creepy, but also the thought of him being found in a wall. A lot of people's responses were like, oh my gosh, like, why would you take him out of a wall? Why wouldn't you leave him there? Like, obviously anything you find in a wall isn't good. (laughs) The responses and the engagement was in the thousands, tens of thousands and international, you know, interest as well, which was really crazy for something from our collection. I know that isn't exactly a typical ghost story, but isn't it just wild? Wheelie now has his own glass case in the Yo-House, so I don't really think he's moving anywhere. I mean, if he did, I'm not going to go within 50 feet of that location anymore. All right, getting away from our museum sites a little bit. I think it's time to hear what we call the more typical island ghost stories. The ones you grow up hearing from family members, passed down through the generations. I met Eric Creamer, a retiree who's lived on the island his whole life. He grew up hearing stories from an uncle through marriage named Stuart McIntyre. Stuart was the East Point lighthouse keeper and would often tell Eric and the other children ghost stories when he visited. We'd be begging him to tell us some ghost stories. He told us about, uh, he used to play cards at a, a farm down the way, and you'd walk down, it was one foggy night, and he was playing cards and had a great time and was walking back uh, home uh, to the to the light at East Point, and, and he said he could hear the footsteps behind him. Uh, uh, he said, I'm not usually nervous, he said, but I got a bad feeling about this, and he said, I started to walk a little faster, and he said, he could hear the footsteps uh, 
walking a little faster, and he said, I was, for some reason, he said, I was afraid to turn around and look and see what it was. He said, I don't know why. He said, anyway, he said, I stepped up a little faster, the footsteps went a little faster, the next thing I know, I'm running, and I'm afraid, he said, and I tripped, he said, and I fell, and the steps stopped right behind me turned around and looked and there was a little man there with white hair and a white beard and two little horns on his head and he he said what do you want what do you want and the little man said bah it was a goat (laughs) (laughs) i hope that one got you as much as it got me when eric first told it i couldn't help but include it even if it isn't a real ghost story but here is another ghost story eric told and I promise there's no goats disguised as devils in this one. Mom uh, uh, always told a story. Uh, Dad is, is who it happened to, but he'd agree with Mom, but he didn't want you to tell it because he said everybody's going to think we're crazy. After the war, they came back from Montreal and they had a place in Surrey that they were fixing up to live in. And Dad was in fixing it up, something not right about the house, and he went down into the basement, and sure enough, there was a hatch and there was a room sealed off. And when he opened the hatch and went up in, it was just a small room and there wasn't anything much in it, a few old medicine bottles. But he just thought it was odd that a room would be sealed off with just a hatch from the basement. Anyway, when he opened that up, he said before the afternoon was over, he was working by himself, and and every door and every window in that house slammed shut. And he said that spooked him, and he he got out of there. But he went back and uh, fixed it up, and and Mom and him moved in. And my brother uh, Lester, uh, first boy, was born. They were lying in bed one night, and Lester was in the crib, and Dad was reading, and he shook Mom and woke her up and and said, do you see them? Mom was looking through the bedroom door at a window, and she thought there was someone in the window or something, but Dad was saying, no, they're at the foot of the bed, and he described two women with long dresses, and, and Dad said one of them had rouge on her cheeks and her lips and stuff and she was crying and the other one was kind of stern looking then they just disappeared so that really put the the fear into dad and he, he went to uh, the wisest person he knew uh, to to get some help with this that was his mother <laughs> but uh, the mother came and, and when dad described them she named them she knew who they were the people that had lived in those houses, and she said that was Mariah. I don't know whether I should say the last name, there's probably relatives still alive, and her sister. Dad said he sold the house to an American fella. The American fella lived in it for a little while and then tore it down. Dad asked him about it, and he said couldn't sleep in the place with the noises. And When I started to tell the story about the two ladies, I, I should have mentioned that Lester uh, died about a week later, uh, and my mother always considered that a forerunner. He had a crib death. On PEI, when someone mentions a forerunner, 
They're usually talking about a supernatural phenomenon that gives a sign or warning of something to come. A forerunner often foretells the impending death of someone in the local community. Even today, many islanders believe forerunners are not only real, but quite common. I'd heard that sometimes ghosts can be an omen of something to come, but I'd never been told a story like that before. Our final ghost story is one by Julie that might sound a little bit familiar to you. Well, there is the ship that's on fire. Apparently the ship had come to PEI and they were burying treasure to hide for later. And something happened to the ship and it never returned. But that ghost ship still comes every spring and every summer to PEI. I've heard from my community that it goes into Lennox Island and if you're sitting out on your deck late at night and the wind is just right, you'll hear the sound of the sails billowing and, and the clanging of the ropes and the chains of the ship and the mutterings of the crew. And once you see it, it goes on fire and disappears into the fog or into the night. And that's one of my favorite, and I really do hope that one day I get to see it. You know, I've talked to people who have seen it, and it is, it's scary, because if you know that part of the island, there isn't a whole lot of water between the islands and Lennox Island, and so this ghost ship comes really, really close to shore. That story strikes a chord, right? When Julie first told it to me, I thought of the Northumberland Phantom Ship. It's been sighted by Maritimers for over 200 years along the Northumberland Strait in all three maritime provinces. So there's eyewitness accounts from not just PEI, but New Brunswick and Nova Scotia too. You can be a skeptic all you want about this one, but over the years it's fooled people enough that they've even gone out to help that ship, only to find it disappear without a trace when they get near. If you know your PEI geography, you'll know Lennox Island isn't along the Northumberland Strait at all, but rather on the northern side of the island. This means there could be two phantom ships haunting the island. I wonder what their stories are. Now, that's an open-ended question because there's no way I can solve a centuries-old mystery. But it makes me wonder. I think, lastly, it's just ghost stories are a way to just keep our minds open to possibilities and to know that our people that have gone on ahead of us are still there and still waiting. We all have a creation story, but we all have an end story too, a story of what's going to happen after we pass on. And maybe it's a way for us that, to know that when it's time for us to pass on, that's not just the end. If you're religious and you believe in heaven or if you're spiritual and you believe in nature, it doesn't matter because we all could be that protective spirit that stands behind your children and grandchildren for generations. Or if you do end up going to heaven or you get lost somewhere along the way and become a lost soul, either or, it gives our brain a chance to understand that death is not always the end. Sometimes it is just the beginning.
The Hidden Island is a production by the PEI Museum and Heritage Foundation. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know I had a ton of fun putting it together for you. If you did enjoy it, please feel free to check us out on our social media or website at peimuseum.ca. If you liked it a lot, feel free to donate or buy a membership. As a not-for-profit, every bit helps. I'd also like to send out some big thank yous to everyone involved in this episode. Julie, Brandy, Eric, thanks for giving your time. And thanks to lots of other people who weren't featured, but offered up their time to help me discover the spooky sides of our island. Shout out to Adam Glant, who's responsible for our intro music. And to Olivia McPhail and Emma Doucette, who did an incredible job reading my mind when I asked them to play something creepy on the piano and guitar for me to record. Thanks for joining.